Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 36, episode 36 of the Independent Insult Podcast. I am your host, Kim Bui Bomani. It's been a minute. It's been a minute since I've been on. been a minute since I've uploaded a podcast episode. This is coming to you live on a Friday after the early signing day period that we're going to get into. Some historical things happened within that area code after Thursday night football. What a game between the Chiefs and the Chargers. Battle to see who comes out on top in the AFC West and a team prevailed. And we're going to talk about how they did so and what does it mean for that franchise moving forward this season. But I mean, I really want to give a shout out to the YouTubers that have been covering SWAC football this year. I mean, they've done a pretty good job. Uh, the SWAC football season is going to reach an end, a conclusion rather. Uh, tomorrow, Saturday, in the Celebration Bowl between my alma mater, Jackson State University, versus South Carolina State in the Mercedes or Mercedes uh, Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia. So really good job uh, for the YouTubers covering SWAC football all season. It's been a movement, say the least, ever since Dion graced upon JSU and has really reignited that football program. A lot of guys have spent time and energy not just to cover Jackson State's meteoric rise, but other HBCU football organizations as well. And we have teams all over that conference that are building, I think, proper and prominent football programs moving forward. Grandma just got their new head coach in Hugh Jackson, and they're making moves on the recruiting trail. Alabama AM showing up their defense after offensively. They've shown they've got what it takes to go score with score with anybody in the conference. And even the likes of a Southern as well, getting their head coach from Eric Dooley, who used to hail from Prairie View. So we're going to give a shout out to my guys, Off Script, Blue Bloods, Cut Day, um, those individuals, and numerous people that I haven't listened as well. I think they've done a very good job putting a face on SWAC football. And now it has allowed guys like a Travis Hunter to step foot on an HBCU platform as a number one overall recruit and really make him a name for himself, not just for him as a player moving towards the pro level, but for the football institution known as Jackson State moving forward. And we're going to dive into that. Pronto, you know, the Travis Hunter commitment, it's been huge. You know, it happened a couple of days ago. Yesterday, I think it allowed a lot of people to reflect on its importance and the response that Florida State had when Hunter flipped from FSU to go to Jackson State. He had committed to Florida State University March of 2020. So it is near the end of 2021. So he's been committed to Florida State for almost two years. And he's decided to flip, join Dion and the Jackson State University football program. And a lot of people are saying, well, the reason why he did it was because of NIL deals. There was a rumor that Barstools maybe supplied the number one overall recruit, $1.5 to $3 million to attend the school to maybe endorse him as a media conglomerate, considering he's a talented player. Dion quickly refuted that on an ESPN show called Max Keyshawn and uh, I forgot the other guy's name. He covers basketball as well, but on their platform. Uh, here's the bottom line when it comes to Travis Hunter. By the way, we're going to talk in-depthly about what he brings to the table as a football player. Um, the reviews I've gotten and the analysis from a variety of sites, most importantly, Rivals.com, 24-7 Sports, 247 Sports, I might add, compare this player to Charles Woodson. He has that type of versatility, not just as a defensive player, but as an offensive wide receiver as well. But here's the big reason why he flipped. Florida State, under Jimbo Fisher, who is now the current head man of the Texas A&M Aggies, who currently have the number one overall recruiting class in the country. 
Florida State University was 85 and 23 under Jimbo Fisher from 2010 to 2017. Since Fisher departed from AM, FSU has went 19 and 27 overall under a variety of head coaches, such as Willie Taggart, Mike Norvell, who just got an extension after trans after improving slightly in the win column from a year prior when he first got the gig. He went from three wins to five. Not supremely better and then Odell Haggins split time Odell Haggins rather split time with Taggart and Fisher departed in 2017 to 2019 respectively Florida State no longer has a winning culture and they're in the process of rebuilding it and hopefully Mike Norvell is able to make that happen in the next two to three years even with Travis Hunter not being a part of the team's recruiting class he was going to be the crown jewel out of everyone in that class they still have a top 15 recruiting class in totality so still have an opportunity to reinvigorate themselves and maybe take control of a wide open ACC considering that Clemson is not what it used to be after losing their offensive and defensive coordinator to the coaching carousel. But the bottom line is Florida State's not a winning culture. When Jimbo Fisher was there from 2010 to 2017, they had six 10 plus win seasons. Um, The two they didn't have 10 plus win seasons under the Fisher era, they won their bowl game. They were a prominent winning organization prior to the Clemson Renaissance. They won a national championship in Jameis Winston's freshman year. Because of that, Winston wound up and won Heisman. Uh, the second, I think at the time, the second freshman quarterback to win the Heisman. The next year, Jameis's last year with the with the organization, they were in the college football playoff. And yeah, they got demolished by Oregon, the eventual runner-up, but they went there. So in that span, they lost, I think, a combined one game while winning 24 to 25-ish, maybe, maybe more than that. So Jimbo Fisher built a winning culture at Florida State. When he left, they haven't really been able to find their footing. And so that allows a guy like Travis Hunter, who, yes, went on record multiple times. It was like, even though Florida State is trash currently, I'm not going to denounce my commitment. I'm not going to flip the script. I'm going to stay true to the organization that I said I'm going to put my football future in the hands of. But, you know, over time, when Dion's calling, knocking on your door, telling you, yo, You can come to this HBCU that I'm a part of in Jackson State. We're building a winning culture. Currently, we've ran through the swag. I've lost one game overall at the precipice of winning an HBCU national championship. And while here, you can continue to build your brand as a player, still be on a direct pipeline to get into the league, and you'll be playing for a more winning football organization currently than Florida State is. I'm sold, especially with the NIL deal being a factor as well. So I'm not here to say the NIL didn't play a part. And Travis Hunter's decision. I think he did. We'll never know what the money, the monetary uh, numbers truly are, probably until the next three to four years when Travis Hunter is gone, whether it's he's gone from Jackson State, as in he did his three years and then declares for the draft, or he transfers whenever Dion decides to leave. But to say that it was the main reason, I think Florida State fans are selling themselves short on the truth. You're not a powerhouse football organization anymore. You used to be under Jimbo Fisher, who did a very good job taking over from Bobby Bowden and brought back the FSU brand into national prominence. But right now, Mike Neville is picking up the pieces to make sure that can be a possibility again. And Travis Hunter was going to be a main part of that resurgence. But Travis Hunter weighed his options, in my opinion. I think he looked at it as this. Look, I can go to FSU, be the best recruit that they have on a team that could possibly get back into the ACC picture postseason-wise, or... You know, the resurgence could be we went from three and six to five and six, which is Norvell's first two years, to seven and five, eight, four, nine and three. Not bad, but you got to expect eventually Clemson is going to be back. So let's say we finish 93 in the ACC and we get to, uh, you know, 93 in the ACC. 
we don't get to the ACC championship because Clemson's in our division and they muscle us out. Or we happen to get to the ACC championship and then we lose. So there's no guarantee that Hunter's coming that automatically they're going to bring themselves back to prominence. They got to figure out their quarterback situation. Um, they just have to, I think, keep their culture intact in terms of building with Norvell. A lot of guys like Norvell. All right. I'm not, I don't know enough about him to denounce him or to say he's not legit, but I do know since Jimbo Fisher has disappeared, his team has been eight games under 500 as a football program. So why attach yourself to that if you don't know what they're building moving forward? You know why Clemson was able to get the likes of Deshaun Watson and Hunter Renfro and Travis Etienne? Well, prior to those guys coming in their respective recruiting classes, Clemson was building something in the Taj Boyd years, in the Sammy Watkins years, in the DeAndre Hopkins years, where they went to a Peach Bowl or the Chick-fil-A Orange Bowl, whatever, the Chick-fil-A Bowl game where they played against LSU and they beat LSU. Really the crowning stamp of resurgence for that organization. You go to a bowl game, you're winning a bowl game against a prominent SEC conference team. It doesn't have to be somebody from the SEC, but you beat a prominent football program. And now you're setting the trajectory for recruits down the line to be like, yo, we're building something here and you can get us over the top. What has Florida State definitively built? They're not going to be a bowl team this year. They missed that opportunity by losing to Florida, maybe by beating a Florida team that's on their last leg this year, switching coaches, and maybe winning your bowl game. Maybe Travis Hunter would have felt comfortable feeling like, you know what? They're not the Florida State I grew up idolizing, which he's accredited to being, but they're building something. They're going for it. They have a winning season. They won their bowl game. Maybe I can bring this team back to ACC prominence. You can't ensure that off of what has happened recently. So I think that's the main reason. Now, what does this mean for Jackson State? What does this mean for HBCU football? We're going to deduct that step by step. Let's focus on Jackson State, what it means for them as a football institution. They have a chance, in my opinion, to be on a historic run, swag-wise, in the Deion Shador ever. Because I don't think Deion Sanders is going anywhere as long as Shador is quarterback of the Jackson State Tigers. I'm, I'm just being real. By the way, it's Jackson State University, not Jacksonville State. I've seen a lot of white media conglomerates refer to these guys as Jacksonville State. That is a different FCS school that is predominantly white. This is an HBCU, predominantly black, Jackson, Jackson, Mississippi, Jackson State. But moving forward, Jackson State, look, they have a chance to go on a meteor going in the swag. I don't expect Shadour to leave Jackson State anytime soon. I think when Deion says he's not going anywhere, he's correct. But I don't think it's solely based upon wanting to build something for the better of HBCU sports, I think it's like, look, my son's in a great position here. He's just won freshman of the year in the FCS, the Jerry Rice Award. I think he has a chance to probably win the Walter Payton Award in the next two years. And eventually, as we continue our dominance, maybe his junior or senior year, we can make a potential push or petition to the SWAT to let us compete in the FCS playoffs, where I think things could get very nasty considering a transfers and recruiting class that they're bringing in. So, for Travis Hunter, when I hear people say, yo, he's going to go to Jackson State and not pan out because JSU doesn't get the TV uh, appearances and who wants to play in the FCS, let me tell you something. I'm going to be honest. Ever since Carson Wentz, I'm talking recently in this century, ever since Carson Wentz went number two overall in his NFL draft out of North Dakota State, this narrative of FCS guys aren't going to get the amount of notoriety that they need to be high draft picks, that's over. And considering Dion has connects to the NFL as a former player, and he's very cool with coaches 
on certain staffs, most importantly, a guy like a Mike Zimmer. I don't know if he'll keep his job long in Minnesota. You honestly think that players that he deems productive within his program aren't going to get a positive, a positive sign of approval as they enter the league as well? You're joking. And then the biggest thing is this. I've did my history. They start to document these recruits, number one, five stars, in-depthly since 2002. Since 2002, every one of these five-star number, I'm not going to say five stars, every one of these number one overall recruits in their respective classes since 2002 have been drafted. It doesn't matter if they were the stuff in college like Leonard Fournette was or a bus like Ronald Powell was at Florida. He got injuries and he never was able to pan out. They get drafted in the league. The reason why is because by being the top recruit in your class, that pro scout intel, that NFL pipeline that's directly sourced to you never leaves. People want to see, okay, the potential that he showed as a potential pro in high school, even if it doesn't feature itself in college, maybe it could do so in the pros. We see it all the time in college basketball. Brandon Boston is a great example. Highly tied recruit coming out of Sierra Canyon. He goes to Kentucky. It doesn't work out for a variety of reasons. Me personally, I think it's two. COVID and Calipari being a trash coach. He goes to the LA Clippers, shows himself out in the G League, and now he's on the Clippers playing a huge role as a second unit scorer with Kawhi not in the lineup. So NFL prospects think the same. If a guy goes to his institution as a number one recruit, it doesn't work out. You honestly think those individuals are going to be like, well, he didn't pan out. I don't know if he'll work in the league, so he'll fall. No. Perfect example. Robert Nkimbichi, who was the number one overall recruit in his class, went to Ole Miss. Didn't have the fabulous numbers that we've seen from prior number one overall recruits, especially at the D-tackle position, the sacks, the TFLs. A lot of it has to do with him being double teamed and whatnot. But he still got drafted in the second round. And he was not the best player defensively on his Ole Miss team. So Travis Hunter being compared by scouts on rivals of 24-7 to Charles Woodson, a Hall of Fame safety slash cornerback who played for the Raiders and the Packers. You honestly don't think he's going to get drafted in the top two rounds? The dude could have played in Mars. It doesn't matter. He's going to get the love and appreciation because he's connected to the NFL automatically for being a number one overall recruit in this class on a variety of sites. And Dion is his coach. And Dion has the connects of a variety of NFL players, coaches, and organizations. He's going to be fine. Dion's already said he's going to play both ways. He's going to play offensively and defensively. I expect him to dominate the SWAC football conference. And it's nothing against the SWAC. I think in the next two years as a conference, they'll improve as a football program. Seeing the likes of Valley get transfers, Alabama A&M get transfers. Guys are catching on. Jackson State built a dominant offensive, defensive, an overall dominant team by living in a transfer portal and taking chances on recruits who normally wouldn't go to an HBCU because not just of what they view the requirements or facilities are for them to be successful, but they never got the offers. Now HBCUs are realizing, you know what? For us to compete with Jackson State, we're going to do what they do. We might not have Dion as the promoter or the guy that convinced a Travis Hunter to come, but we can get a transfer from a Marshall or from an Illinois that didn't have a chance to show his worth because of injuries or behind the depth chart. He could come here and be an impactful player. So I think the SWAC will become a better conference overall down the line, but I still think Travis Hunter is going to do damage. And all Travis Hunter has to do, all he has to do is win the Buck Buchanan Award, which goes to the best defensive player in the FCS. All he has to do is that. And 
book it. He'll be top five. So this narrative that Florida State fans are like, he's he's going to get hurt and he's not going to get the notoriety he's from a D2 school. Jackson State has been on TV a lot more recently than they ever have since Deion has come. Since they're even better than they have been in the past, they're going to be a better team than they were next year. You don't think that every game that they play moving forward and a swag that is of importance, they're not going to be on national TV. They'll be there. Hunter is going to be fine. He's going to thrive in Jackson State. I think Deion's going to build a dominant program in the swag as long as his son's there. And in the end, what does it mean for HBCUs overall? I think it just shows that, look, you just got to put yourself out there. All right. A lot of things have happened since the George Floyd situation. I think it's awakened a lot of individuals to the fact that being black is an annoyance and a deterrence and a limitation to rise in this white supremacist society. I'm just going to be honest. And so I think a lot of guys want to go back to their roots and feel comfortable doing something that they love around people that aren't going to berate them with praise one day and then berate them with racist taunts the next. Now, am I out here saying HBCUs are not going to use this guy to their advantage and not, you know, give him passes and stuff around campus because he's a star? I'm not going to say that. I mean, come on, Travis Hunter, he's going to get some benefits at JSU. Trust. However, look, man, be at a program around your people that are going to support you no matter what, and you're going to get endorsed and promoted like you probably never would at the FSU. It's something he couldn't pass up. I wouldn't pass up either. And do I think moving forward, it could be a chaining reaction? Of course, because what has happened NFL-wise recently, the Carson Wentz's, the Cooper Cups, the Darius Leonard's, the Tariq Cohen's, these guys have played at FCS-level schools, a couple of HBCUs, a couple of other FCS programs. They're on the rise. You don't have to go D1 FBS to get into the league. If you can play, they'll find you. And then once they find you and put you in a nice system, you can thrive and be an all-pro. So I think with that being considered, I think more guys are going to go to those institutions, make ways, make impacts, and be the change that they seek to bring. So, hey, man, kudos to Travis. But to just sit here and be like the NILs and Marys, why he went to Jackson State? No, I think the main reason is Florida State's not the powerhouse that they used to be, that he idolized growing up which makes it easier for you to flip. Trust me, if Florida State was, if they play like Pitt did this year, because Pitt won the ACC, if they had a Pitt-type record, he wouldn't flip. He wouldn't. Because he's like, look, man, I know what you're pissing me on, but they got something going on over there, and I can help bring us back to relevance. They're not there in relevance yet. They may be there in a couple of years, but it's going to take time. And I don't think Travis could hitch his career to that wagon and hope that can happen. So we'll see what happens on both sides. Next up, man, this Thursday night football game between the Kansas City Chiefs and the L.A. Chargers, it was it was a movie. It was a movie indeed. And there's a variety of things to talk about. Am I going to get into Brandon Staley going for it three times and failing? Was that wise? I didn't think it was wise in the moment. And, I, and I'm not one of those people that's like, yo, if they would have got one of them and won, I would have never criticized. I, he would have still got that smoke for sure. We're going to talk about Kansas City, man. Seven game winning streak. It seems like eons ago when they were three and four, but look at that. 10 and four, currently number one in the AFC. And I think there's a pretty good chance they can run the table and be the number one seed in the AFC for the third year in a row. I don't think people realize how unreal that is. I think the last time I remember something like that happening, obviously it's the Patriots, pretty sure. But like offensively, be that dominant where they run through their conference. The 
Greatest show on turf, the LA Rams. Well, the St. Louis Rams. Um, this is before they were called the LA Rams. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. But let's start on the game. All right. Patrick Mahomes. I mean, look, man. I, I think he coming into the year, he's the best quarterback in the league. Um, as this year comes to the close, excuse me. I think he's still top three. If you want to put Brady up there and Rodgers, okay. I think Brady has outplayed Rodgers by four. I think Rodgers has been helped immensely, I think, recently behind a running game that's being discovered. Uh, I feel like Green Bay, the way they're playing, is kind of how they play the year that the Niners just destroy them in the playoffs. But, no, man, I've heard I've heard narrative. Mahomes has been figured out. Kansas City is not going to the playoffs. Their run is over, three and four. And the whole time it was happening, I was just like, look, man, I'm going to be honest. Kansas City needs to cut down on the turnovers, and they'll be fine. Did I expect defensively to have this historic turnaround from week seven on? No, uh, that's a bonus. But if you look at the games that they've lost, because I've watched most of these games due to the fact that I work for PFF and Mahomes is on my fantasy team. Chargers, the first time they played them, they gifted them three early turnovers. I think they turned the ball over on their first three drives, and they only lost by one possession. Uh, Baltimore, they were dominating that game for start to finish. Two turnovers in the fourth quarter, one that opened the floodgates for a Lamar Jackson comeback, and then the other one while they were driving to kick a field goal allowed them to lose that game. They only got dominated in two matchups. Got dominated against Buffalo when they were at their peak, and they got, and they got dominated by Tennessee when they were at their peak. What this NFL season has shown, especially in the AFC, this season is about momentum. You could be at your peak early in the year, but it might not be how you are as you finish. Buffalo went from being the Kings of the AFC, the next one's up to hanging on by a thread to get into the playoffs. Tennessee went from that huge winning streak that they're on, kind of the one Tennessee's on now, to Derrick Henry's hurt. He may come back in the playoffs. And now, even if he does come back, you have to worry about the health status of Julio Jones and A.J. Brown. They stay broken up once every two weeks. So, bottom line is, I wasn't phased by Kansas City. I thought that they would figure it out and they'd be in the playoffs, and they have. And I think two of the biggest reasons why is Mahomes has done a better job of taking what the defense gives him, not turning the ball over, and letting the underneath stuff open up the big plays down the field. And then defensively, for starters, stopping the run has been huge for them. They didn't stop the run very well against the Chargers at all. I thought the Chargers could continue running that trap concept up the gut, especially with Chris Jones not there. But for the most part, they've been able to slow down the run. That's helped their winning streak. And then their secondary plays running into form. Daniel Sorensen, kind of the punching bag in that secondary, has played better. And I think that's helped more than people would give it credit for. But last night, man, I'm going to be honest. If the Chargers decide not to go for it and take the field goal two or three possessions, they win. And I feel like after the second time, like the first time they didn't get it, and the second time they're down there, like the way the game is going, Kansas City hasn't shown to you yet through three quarters that every time they touch the football, they're going to score, whether that's a field goal or a touchdown. Now, they did so that opening drive, but that second drive where they were on the move and they got neutralized, it's kind of like, okay, you were down 10 nothing, You went up 13-10. You take the points before the half, especially when Kansas City gets it to start. You have to take the points before the half, especially when Kansas City gets it to start the second half. If you got to just start the second half, I wouldn't have a problem with it. But you got to take the points even when you're up 
I think they were up 14 10. You got to. They did not think laying the game where you're up. Bro, take the points. Listen, Dustin Hopkins, I remember him a little bit. He used to play for the Saints as a kicker. He's not that bad of a kicker. Utilize your kicker. I know your mindset is I want to be aggressive. I want to be considered. I want to be aggressive. I want to respect the opponent that's across from me. I want to maximize all positions that we have. But the way the game was going, Kansas City hadn't clicked enough offensively for you to feel like I got to go for this. You know, it didn't. It did. But then it did when Mahomes turned the corner through all his touchdown passes in the fourth quarter and overtime. And here's one thing that the Chargers kept doing, and I and I don't understand. All right. Why are you continuing to play man coverage? Especially when you don't have Duran James and Asante Samuel Jr. Now, Asante Samuel Jr., before he went out, struggled a little bit. But for the most part, he's been a revelation for them. I liked him a lot coming out of Florida State. I wish the Saints picked him in the second round. Plays a lot like his pops. Doran James can't stay healthy to save his life. But to be fair, when he has played, he's played like an all-pro. So if they're there and you want to play man across the board with Doran James following Travis Kelsey, fine. But when you have Devontae Campbell, who continued to get torched in man coverage against Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey, you're asking for a lot. And then over time, down the stretch and over time, they decided, all right, we're going to double their two best players but you don't have to contain elements down properly. It allows Mahomes to get out the pocket and run for first downs. The key to success against the Chiefs has been this. Play two deep safeties and keep everything underneath. Chargers went away from that and decided to play man across the board and trust that their pass rush could get home, and it did at times, but it struggled to contain Mahomes in a pocket to allow him to not break contain and run for first downs or extend plays against their man coverage and make those throws down the field for first downs. The worst thing you can do when you're playing man is allow the oppositional quarterback to break and save, especially if he's a guy like Mahomes who uses mobile enough to get a first if you don't spot him, and also utilizes his legs to open up passing avenues down the field. So I, Staley, man, that scheme, man across the board, didn't agree with it. I think it cost them, as well as him not going not taking the points when it's there. You take the points before the half to ensure you're up by seven coming out. And down the stretch, when you're in command, they were up 14-13, and then they fumbled. Take the points. Take the points. Because guess what happened the next possession? Mahomes threw a pick. And guess what happens when Mahomes threw a pick? You're in your own territory. You score. Who's to say that couldn't have not happened that next possession, if Kansas City had to go to the, the field again. Now, you got the fuel. You score off a turnover. That's 10 points. You're up 11. And I don't think the way the Kansas City Chiefs defense was kind of falling apart down the stretch, I don't think that would have been enough for them to come back. But you kept the door open against Mahomes. Mahomes proved if you keep the door open against a talent like him, he's going to take advantage and they're going to win. Now, what does this mean for Kansas City moving forward? They're the hottest team in football right now. And before matchups against the Raiders, the Broncos, really before matchups against their division, I'm going to be honest, it was skepticism. I felt like the skepticism was extreme. And here's why. They had a valid point against the Packers. Rodgers wasn't there. All right, so if Rodgers was there, the way Kansas City was playing offensively, they probably would have lost that game. I'll give you that. The Giants, I think, is unfair 
because you could say they beat the Giants barely, but that's the same Giants team that beat a Saints team that at that point in the season had Jameis and was kind of rolling a little bit. And that's also the same Giants team that beat a Raiders team that a lot of people, contrary to what they're saying now, had respect for even when Henry Rose wasn't in the lineup anymore because he could have pedestrian due to the fact that he was drunk. Drunk driving. So they beat those teams. So I don't give you that. And yes, they played the Cowboys. Yes, the Cowboys didn't have Amari Cooper and C.D. Lamb. But I'm going to be honest. They had Amari Cooper and C.D. Lamb against the Saints. And they struggled. They've had Amari Cooper and C.D. Lamb ever since Dak Prescott came back from his calf injury. And they haven't been the same. So now we can start to agree that's an indictment on Dak not being 100% than the weapons around him. So what I'm saying is even if those guys are back in the lineup, I don't know if they are offensively still in his own. Cooper has, ten- Cooper has a tendency to fade to black, gets tough competition. And as dynamic as C.D. Lamb is, he has a tendency to be a little inconsistent as well. He's just starting to dive into his fullest potential as an NFL wide receiver. So you had a valid points against Green Bay. Everybody else, bro, they, they found a way to be great. Then they played their divisional rivals. It looks like the Denver Broncos have a chance to be a playoff team this year. I don't think they will because everybody in the AFC that's in the hunt kind of all have the same record, 7-6, and 76 and 76-76. And, you know, Denver has to play Kansas City to end the year. They play Cincinnati. Um, those are two teams that are going to have stuff to play for. So they have high-power offenses. So my response to that is if those offenses put up 20 against their improved defense, is Teddy going to be – is Teddy and their offensive game plan going to be enough to match that or surpass it? I don't know. But Denver's not a bad team. So when people say, well, Denver, Denver has a tough defense that Kansas City final where they score 20-plus points win. And Teddy has shown he can put up points against mediocre to bad defenses. But if you're top level, which was which is what Kansas City's defense has shown this year, it's going to be a struggle for a guy like Teddy. The Raiders destroy them twice. But before they destroy them twice, there was a narrative. Uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, the Raiders going to catch Kansas City slipping. Because as bad as the Raiders have tanked out, we could say this Raiders team is a lot better than those other teams that tanked out. Their pass rush has improved thanks to Max Crosby. The secondary play has been a revelation thanks to a career resurgence from Casey Hayward. Nate Hobbs has been phenomenal. Trevor Morick has been solid. Um, Derek Carr has shown flashes. But the issue has been they don't have that deep threat, and their offensive line has struggled to kind of protect Carr, and Carr's play has dipped. But they denounced, they denounced it. And then this Chargers team that everybody thought was going to catch Kansas City slipping. Kansas City did what they didn't do in the first game. Meetup. Cut the turnovers in half. Instead of turning the ball over four times, they turned over twice. Defense set the tone for three quarters, and then their offense woke up doing large part to the fact that Staley's game plan was weird, play man coverage across the board and not contain a mobile guy like Mahomes, and went for it three times on four downs instead of taking field goals, especially considering the flow and the temperature of the game, which was Kansas City's struck. Kansas City can move the ball up and down the field, but they're not finishing drives with touchdowns. So you don't have to match them score from score. And you're playing it with fire because that Chargers defense just isn't what we are projected to be coming into the year. But, you know, Kansas City's for real. And I think the way things are shaking up, I think they'll wind up with the number one seed because I expect the Patriots to lose to the Colts. And I expect them to lose to the Bills. Yep, I can't believe I'm saying it. 
not a bill scene. Everybody was hyping up as man, they got next, and that the principals are not making it. And then they split with the Bills because the Bills are found themselves a little bit against Tampa offensively. I think defensively will continue to be a struggle against Buffalo, but be a struggle for Buffalo. But New England has shown they don't have full faith and confidence to put the ball in Mac Jones's hands and put it in the air 30 to 35 times. So if you focus on the run and kind of make Mac Jones beat you at this point of his career, you got a shot. So I think New England's going to probably lose two of their next four games. They're going to lose to the Colts, though, for sure. I don't think that's a good matchup. For New England, because Indy's just as physical. Their defense is very underrated. And Carson Wentz is the guy that kind of gauges where they go as a team. When he's efficient, they win. When he's turnover prone, they lose. But I expect him to be efficient enough because they're going to ride Jonathan Taylor. But we also know who Bill represents. He's going to take away your strength. So he might stack the box and say, Carson beat us. But it's a road game in Indy. I think Indy's out of shot. Tennessee, I, I think Tennessee loses to Pittsburgh this week. I do. Um, now, this Pittsburgh team put themselves behind the eight ball because they couldn't stop them run for anything against Dalvin Cook. But good news for the Steelers, they don't have to face Derrick Henry. They're going to face Devontae Foreman, who – Deontay Foreman, rather, who has shown flashes of being a credible NFL running back, but he's not Derrick Henry. I don't expect the Titans to give it to Foreman 30 times. I think they'll put the ball in the air enough, and I think they'll allow that Pittsburgh secondary to be opportunistic and make plays. And who else? Baltimore, they've got injuries. Uh, they got a couple of game wars that they're going to drop. So I expect Kansas City to run the table in the regular season, win out, have some help from others to lose, which means for the third year in a row, the AFC is going to go through Arrowhead, and that's a tough place to play. No one other than Brady has beat Kansas City in Arrowhead in the postseason, in the Mahomes era. So that's the worst-case scenario for everybody. Their offense is starting to find their groove, and I, I think it doesn't matter what coverage you play. You kind of have to hope at this point, if you play the too deep safety look, that Mahomes gets impatient and turns the ball over. Or he has an off-thorn performance like he kind of had for the first three quarters. He missed Harmon in the flat for an easy score, missed a couple of guys on some check downs. He was missing throws. But as the fourth quarter and overtime happened, he was making those tight windows throws that we couldn't confidently say he was making of regularly in the first three quarters. So Kansas City has found themselves. And I think at this point, as an NFL fan, you just got to hope that Mahomes has those turnover games that he had early on in the year in the postseason, and that'll be enough to win. But that's no guarantee as well. So, but I also want to give a shout out to the Chargers and Herbert. Look, man, Herbert's the truth. Uh, wasn't completely sold on him coming out of Oregon, but it's pretty clear the first two years, Mario Crystal Ball severely underutilized Herbert as a talent, severely. And Herbert is, in my opinion, what Josh Allen fanboys think Allen is. He's athletic as Allen, just as athletic. He has an arm just as strong, but he's more accurate consistently, in my opinion, on platform and off than Josh is. And we saw it a lot on display where he was rolling out on some, like, on-the-move pocket. Not pocket, but as if you're on the move, some on-the-move throwing chances against D-linemen that were showing themselves in his face, arms wide. And he was making pinpoint throws against some coverages. Now, down the stretch, he continued to throw the needle, and it didn't work the last two possessions, which opened the door for a Kansas City comeback. But Herbert's the truth. I think moving forward, though, for the Chargers, 
who coming into the year, I said was a playoff team. And I think they will be a playoff team this year. They just won't win the AFC and probably will have to play. Well, no, probably. They more than likely will have to play a playoff game on the road in the wild card. I think moving forward, they need to find younger weapons for him. And I think guys like Josh Palmer or guys you could build upon in the future, but Keenan Allen's not getting any younger. Mike Williams is going to be a free agent. I think you need to find a younger tight end weapon. I think the offensive line is building into something. Look what they did without Rashawn Slater last night. It was solid. But defensively, they might need to go younger as well. Got to make a decision on Derwin James. He can't stay healthy. I think add some more corners around Asante Samuel Jr. But charters have a chance. You saw even when Phillip Rivers was there his last few years. They're a team that always gives Kansas City problems in the AFC. In the Mahomes era. Because they have the offensive firepower to match what Kansas City does. Now they have incorporated a run game under Joe Lombardi. They're going to be a tough team to beat. But I just don't think they're ready yet. Because schemes that they run, injuries. And I don't know consistently if they can hold up against a team that's a power run football team. Kansas City didn't run the ball particularly well against the second worst run defense in all the football. But then again, Kansas City threw a parade on them down the stretch, and that's how they won. Their defense is too inconsistent for me to believe that they have what it takes to survive in the playoffs. They were able to beat Cincinnati because they got turnovers and took advantage of them. But in the Kansas City game, they got the two takeaways from Mahomes. The pick, they translated to a touchdown. And then the fumble that he had, because what happened with the fumble that he had, which was his first turnover, they didn't get any points from it. So if they had 10 points off of turnovers, they probably won that football game. So that's that there. Moving on, I want to touch base to the NBA, circuit NBA basketball. Uh, A lot of things have happened so far in the NBA. Sports world as well. Let me touch base on this sports world as well. COVID-19 pandemic still raging forward. It's intensified due to Omicron busting through the scene. So you have a lot of teams having guys in COVID protocol situations. NCAA basketball, excuse me, is facing that wrath as their marquee Saturday matchup on CBS. Both of those games are canceled because of COVID outbreaks. And so we're going to see what that does to basketball institutions, not just professionally, but collegially. But so far, I'm going to talk about teams that have played, which is basically all of them except Chicago, and what they've been able to do moving forward with that. The Brooklyn Nets, man, uh, Kevin Durant, he's playing like an MVP. He's playing like an MVP this season. Coming into the season, I told everyone, my friends, people online, that I didn't think LeBron James was the top five NBA player anymore. It's nothing against LeBron James legacy-wise. It's nothing against him as an all-time great. But I said the top five players in the league during that summer coming into the year were Giannis, KD, Jokic, Embiid Curry. And so far, all of those guys are proving me right. Now, LeBron has done a pretty good job of keeping the Lakers afloat by playing well in the spurs that he's been on the floor, but he missed a, a week. I think that's helped him kind of regain his his charge and have fabuloso games against oppositions that are weaker than them. But consistently, bro, without Jokic, the Nuggets are nothing. And a lot of it has to do with injuries. Porter Jr. is done for the year with the back situation. We don't know if Jamal Murray is going to come back in time. P.J. Dozier tore his ACL as well. So injuries have hurt them. 
And the plus minus speaks for themselves. When Jokic is on the floor, they're a functional NBA team. That's a threat in the West. When he's not, they're a lot of team. Uh, same can be said with Joel Embiid. Not that bad with the Sixers. There's been games when Embiid hasn't played and Phillies looked very competitive. But it's pretty clear that, you know, when Embiid's on the floor, they are a team that can win a playoff series in the East. But the fact of the matter is they need to find compensation for Ben Simmons ASAP because they're missing not just his defensive presence, but it's also, as although it's limited, it's still untapped offensive ability. They're missing that. But Durant, back to him. He's balling, man. I mean, James Harden's been to show themselves so far this year. Um, they've had come and go performances from consular pieces like Patty Mills, who's been a revelation for them and Marcus Aldridge, but Durant's been the common denominator. They're 21 and nine, I think, currently, 21 and eight in the East. They're best team in the East. They're one of the four teams in the league so far that have 20 wins. They're legit. And I think coming to the year, I was very skeptical about them because Kyrie, is he going to come back? Is he not? I say Kyrie's probably going to be back before Christmas. Around that time, he may. We'll see what happens. Um, I was skeptical on Harden because Harden, stuff I've seen, was still fat, overweight. And the rule-wise, he's tried to you still utilize that to his advantage. It's been come or go. And so he hasn't adjusted to the Florida game, and he's not in shape. So I was thinking, can Durant do it? Second year after injury, he's pretty getting up there. But he's balling, and they're playing well, and they're living and dying by him. And I think in the Eastern Conference where it is clear when Milwaukee's 100% with their big three, they're the best team in the conference. Nuts can, I mean, nuts. Nets can gain immense ground. Well, not immense ground, but they can create immense distance against the contemporaries because Chicago's going through their COVID situation. Milwaukee's going through theirs. And – that's kind of the teams that are challenging. Miami's you got injuries to, to boot. You know, Bam's not going to come back until January. And I, this is something that the Nets are going to need, man. They're going to need to get the number one seed, in my opinion. They're going to need to get the number one seed because it will allow them to play advantageous matchups early in the postseason. That may not be a good thing, though, considering teams like the Cavs look like they're going to be a top five team. So that may be your team in the second round. All right. Your first-round team may mess around and be Atlanta because they're a play-in team. So the East is by far tougher than the West, in my opinion, this year. It really is. It's a deeper conference than the West. So being a number one seed may not be as advantageous as it was in the past, but I think Brooklyn, they need a home court. They need some matchups where just having Durant alone will be enough, and I think that will be enough against a team like Atlanta if they have to play them. Cleveland may be a little bit tricky because they're so big and they utilize their big men very well because they have two guards in Garland and Rubio that can get those guys touches, such as Mobley and Allen. But they need the one seed, Brooklyn, in my opinion, out of everybody. Because I think Bucks are going to bank on their championship pedigree and their big three being healthy. Uh, I think Miami kind of likes the nucleus that they have. And Chicago can probably feel like, look, we got two all-star caliber talents when they're healthy and Levine and DeRozan, so we can lean on that. But they need it the most. They're playing well so far. Let's we'll see where that goes. Another team I want to give a shout-out for, man. They've been balling. And I said it earlier in the year when I saw them playing the preseason against – saw them playing against the Hornets and the Bucks. Now, when they played the Bucks in the preseason, Bucks wasn't really hitting on nothing. They didn't have their starters. their key guys. But the Hornets thing was intriguing. They were playing hard. That's, that's, that's the most outstanding – thing I took from their performances in the preseason, but it was pretty clear Ja 
wasn't going to have to carry these guys this year because Jaron Jackson looked like he improved on his game immensely. He's playing more around the basket. Desmond Bain is putting the ball on the floor, being more assertive as an offensive weapon. We know what Dylan Brooks is. And Steven Adams is kind of a better fit for what they do than Jonas because he doesn't kind of clog the offensive upside of their wings because he's a guy that's not going to demand the ball in the post to get buckets, but rather a cleanup guy, get rebounds, swing it back out, set screens, take advantage of lobs. And this is a Memphis team that has went 9-1 and one without John Morant in the lineup. Morant had the sprain that we all thought was a potential ACL tear. It wasn't. Then he got in the COVID protocol recently, so he might not be back. It's not on my – I don't expect Morant to be back with the Grizzlies until next year, the next calendar year, I might say. But Memphis has been great, man, and I want to pat myself on the back because I called it. You know, I talked to my boy Clem about it all year, early. It's like I think Memphis is one of the more underage starting fives in the league. It wasn't popular because at that time Morant was playing, and Morant was playing at such a high level that MVP chants were prominent. Then he went out. And I'm not going to lie, I was a little skeptical. I was like, look, I like the team, but, man, if he's out, it's going to be tough for him. It's disappointing. Then they went on that run showing their prominence that I booking them to be. I think it's pretty clear definitively. You got three top-tier teams in the West. Phoenix and Golden State are 1A and 1B. It depends on what you like. I think Phoenix is the more complete team to Golden State because of what Chris Paul brings to the table intangible-wise as a point god. Uh, Devin Booker's been a lot more efficient with Paul on his team and in the fold. And now they have, I think, the missing link on their team. They needed a backup center just in case Aiden got in foul trouble or gets injured. And they found somebody in JaVel McGee who's played phenomenally the past week. And I liked him early on for a squad early in the year. He's been one of the more underrated free agent pickups on the season. For sure. But it depends on what you like. Like I said, I like Phoenix's completeness. Some people may like Golden State's defensive ability and their potential offensive upside down the line whenever Clay decides to come back, and it looks like he's going to come back a few days after Christmas, and I expect James Wallen to follow suit, James Wiseman, rather, to follow suit in the next calendar year. And then you got the Jazz. The Jazz, in my opinion, are this is probably the best Jazz team in the Donovan Mitchell era. And I'm saying that because, yeah, they still jack it up with the best of them, but they're a lot more efficient offensively doing large part because Donovan Mitchell's scoring prowess recently has been efficient, and they're incorporating Rudy Gobert into the offensive game plan on dives to the basket, pick and rolls, lob opportunities. And the narrative on Rudy Gobert has been he's an overrated defender because when cats go small, they take him out the court because he doesn't have the foot speed to keep up with an athletic guard. And we've seen that. But my response has been to denounce those sentiments you got to play teams out of their small lineup and to do that is you have to utilize Gobert's size and underrated touch around the basket to his advantage and they're doing that this year and if they continue to do that in the postseason I think they can have a deeper playoff run than years past I think they've realized look we can still match the three but living and dying by the three in the postseason is a recipe for disaster if you don't have in my opinion one of the two best shooters of all time in Curry and Clay. They don't have that. They have volume scores who can get hot when their shot's going in. So you have to find different ways to stay afloat offensively, and that means utilizing Gobert against teams that want to go small. That way you get those teams out of that small ball lineup, which allows Gobert's defensive acumen to rise 
to the top because now he'll be able to see guys that are just as big as him. Does Gobert struggle against fives that are versatile offensively? They can be productive around the basket in a way. Uh, he struggles against AD and Jokic. I'm not saying he doesn't. But let's say the Jazz draw a Golden State. His ability and upside can be utilized on both ends if he's on the floor. And they're going to need him on the floor. But like I stated, those are the top three teams in the West. I think Memphis is now starting to succumb themselves as the fourth. And this is without John. I think with John there, I think they're they're a top four team. So all that being said, those are the top four teams in the West. Now, my question for all the Laker guys that coming into the year thought this team is going to put the Lakers at the number one in the West off rip. And then that was the end of the Phoenix fluky run. And Golden State was a cute story, but they're no match for that all-NBA world talent. Now you got to ask yourself, are the Lakers competent enough to beat Phoenix, Golden State, Utah, and Memphis in a seven-game series? No, I don't think they are. Now, they've won three straight recently. But look who they've beaten. Orlando, I like what they're building. They're probably one of the more progressive five and 22 teams in the league. I think they have something with Wagner, Franz Wagner. They have something with Cole Anthony. Jalen Suggs, before he got hurt, was showing his potential. Uh, Mo Bamba this year when he's been healthy and playing looks like an NBA big. I don't know if he's like a, a legitimate star. He's more so probably a rotational guy. So they're building something in Orlando, but they're not a good team. Oklahoma City's not as bad as people think when Sam Presley decides to pull the cord a little, not pull the cord, but slightly eject the cord from the socket of tanking and say, you know what, guys, going to put our young talent out there and let them play. Their three-guard line of Giddy, Dort, and SGA solid. It is. But the Lakers should beat those guys. <laughs> They're just more, they got more talent. I mean, they did. And they went to the wire as a Dallas Maverick team that did not have Luka Doncic. So they've beaten, look, man, you, you can only beat who you play, but context is important. So they're 16 and 13, but look at their games coming up. They got Minnesota Saturday, and it's going to be without Horton and Westbrook. So expect LeBron and Rondo and AD, that, that traditional lineup to help them get a ring. They'll be on the floor. That Minnesota team is inconsistent as heck. But when D'Lo plays and ants on offensively and incorporate Carl, they're a tough team to beat because they're a much better defensive team. And that's thanks to Chris Finch and Pat Bev. Then after that, you have the Nets on Christmas. That's going to be tough. Um, that's going to be tough because you don't defend anybody. I, I think that's the biggest thing. And I don't know who they play after Phoenix. I think they may play after they play Phoenix before the Nets. Clip Lakers can mess them around and lose three straight. And then 32 games in, we're talking about, dang, they're back to 500. The biggest issue with the clip with the Lakers. I might have said the Clippers on accident, the Lakers. They don't defend anybody. They physically can't because they're old. They're an inconsistent shooting team. Yeah, they have Baysmore, Melo, and Austin Reeves. Austin Reeves is probably their best pure shooter. Melo second. Everybody else has stretches where they can make a shot, and that includes Golden Arm, Wayne Ellington. They have moments where they can make a shot, but they also have moments where they can go cold. So they're a streaky shooting team. And your best player on your team, which in my opinion is AD, is not playing at his best. So LeBron's having to tie back into his legacy years to keep this team afloat. And that's expected and 
productive enough against weak teams, but what about against better, more complete teams? LeBron's not going to be enough. So I was never high on his Laker team coming in. I I didn't think that they'd make it to the West Finals, and the way things are shaking up, they're teetering out of the plan. But I think they can be able to stay out the plan because those playing teams, man, I think Minnesota, out of all the playing teams that are there, it's Minnesota, it's, it's Dallas, Denver, Minnesota, and the Kings. Or Dallas, Denver, Minnesota Kings. I'm, I'm going to have to pull up. But Denver has the best player. Dallas has probably the better team. But I think Minnesota has the better trio. I, I, I'd be more confident in Minnesota and Denver probably coming out of that playing situation than Dallas and Sacramento. Because KP has shown when he's on the floor, even though he's kind of a show of himself health-wise, he could still play. But that Dallas team, I was never high on them. After the last two seasons, they brought back the same team, got a different coach. They're kind of on the same level as they were the past two years. I don't know if that's enough because Minnesota's coming. And eventually with Denver, Murray may come back or Denver can make a move to add somebody to go with Yoke. So all that was being said, Lakers won't be a playing team this year because the playing teams that exist, I don't think will be better than them. So they'll be fine. But now if things shake out how they are, because they have the same record as the Clippers, you're going to play Utah and Memphis in a, in a playoff series. I don't think you can beat them because they're both younger. They both defend better than you <laughs> enough. Utah by far, Memphis has stretches. They're, Memphis is still not a good defensive team, but they defend better than the Lakers, in my opinion. And their depth is more consistent than L.A.'s. L.A.'s has stretches where some aspect of their depth shows up on a Wednesday or a Thursday night, but do I expect that Austin Reeves in a playoff series to consistently give you 9 to 10 quality minutes a night? I don't. But Memphis has shown this year, and I expect in the postseason, Kyle Anderson, Tyus Jones, Dylan Brooks, and Xavier Tillman are going to give you quality minutes. So I'm I'm sold on that than what the Lakers got going. But, you know, West, like I said, it's weaker. Um, Sacramento, man, say this year, they could be a playing team. And considering that the West is so bad that the 12 and 17 Kings are a play-in team, 30 games in, they have a little COVID outbreak as well. They won't be playing anytime soon. This says a lot. But, hey, man, episode 36 is going to come to a close. It's great to talk about Travis Hunter, NFL topics, NBA topics. Try to be back next week with a guest, possibly. See what shakes up there. But um, it's your host, Kimbui Bomani. On this Friday, give you some in-depth sports takes. But before I go, I want to have a little, little, little rant, a little comment on something that uh, is prominent within me. So, NFL draft's coming up. And I work for PFF, and I'm pretty sure once the season over, PFF, the, the things I edit, things I may potentially write, they're going to go really in-depth on the NFL draft process. Who should go where, where these guys are graded, this and that. Hopefully, the combine and the senior bowl and East West, hopefully all those games continue because, you know, the pandemic, COVID outbreak, it, it's research again. So, hopefully, all those things happen because I want to see these guys, especially at these new events that they've created, the Legacy Bowl, which is for HBCU athletes. That'll be on NFL Network February 22nd. I'm checking that out for sure. 
and maybe after I check it out, uh, maybe off script and me can do an episode or talk about, you know, what, who kind of signed out, uh, all that. Look, man, this is not a good quarterback class, top heavy. But I do think in this draft, you can get some quarterbacks that can be game changers. And it looks like Kenny Pickett's probably going to be the first guy off the board. A couple months ago, Malik Willis was the talk of the town. Didn't play well in the head-to-head against Matt Corral. I think Willis will find a place somewhere. But Kenny Pickett's probably going to be the first quarterback off the board. Right now, the league, the world, wants Detroit to take Hutchinson. I have to see film on Kenny. But the guys I've liked that I've seen, Carson Strong is an NFL caliber quarterback. Grayson McCall from Coastal Carolina is an NFL caliber quarterback. Watch out for those two guys in the future, probably panning out the most over a Matt Corral, a Kenny Pickett, or a Sam Howell. We all can agree the best quarterback in the next two years in college is going to be Bryce Young. And he's coming out next year. So expect a lot of teams to tank for Bryce Young. And I expect those teams to probably be Detroit, Houston, um, who else? Maybe Pittsburgh. I don't know. Pittsburgh got some Utah Jazz. They always want to be competitive. Maybe Seattle might take for them next year if the Russell Wilson thing doesn't work out. But, look, man, it's not a a strong quarterback class, top-heavy-wise, but there's some quality talent there. And I think for all the teams that – are going to probably be pressured to pick one. Pick the one that you feel like has the best upside for the pros and fit your system. And I think guys like Strong and McCall, they're a couple to look out for. I like them a lot. I, I don't go, have to go back and see Strong's recent tape, see McCall's recent tape to definitely be like, those are my guys, but I like them a lot. But, you know, and as for the Saints, man, look, man, I, I know we like picking linemen in the first round. <sighs> I just need in the second and third just to get a pass catcher and a future QB. That's that's it. But hey, technically the Saints still got a playoff chance. Six and seven. We'll we'll see what happens there. They play on Sunday night. But that's all I got for you guys, man. Episode thirty six is on the books. And I'll be back next week for episode thirty seven. Stay easy. Stay safe. Peace out.